Well, this morning we return to 1 Timothy chapter 5, something I've been looking forward to. Uh, some great things that we are going to encounter in the weeks to come as we try to finish up this book by the end of July. And uh, I don't know if we'll get there or not, but we're working towards that end. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, we are going to look at the good servants rebuking. If you were to talk to any of the elders at Calvary Bible Church and say, you know, what is the worst part about being an elder? They will tell you, probably pretty straight away, is confronting people in sin. And uh, it's about as fun as, uh, you know, hitting your thumb with a hammer, um, burning yourself with a hot iron, or getting a bad paper cut. Um, it's miserable. It's not fun. Uh, it's something we have to do on a fairly regular basis. And um, it's a painful task. It's painful because people in sin don't like to be told they're in sin. It's painful because people in sin often get mad when you tell them they're in sin. There is the ever-present reality also that uh, you know you're a sinner too. That you have committed every sin that they have committed, maybe not to the same degree, maybe not for the same time span, but everybody has broken every law there is. You aren't perfect and you aren't sinless and yet you have to go confront them. And it's not very fun. You are to confront the sin of the other person even though you are not perfect yourself. And and in the process, it's just just miserable because you go there and some people who are really entrenched in sin, by the time it gets to the elders, a lot of times their behavior is, I mean, they're concretized. And and they don't want to turn. They don't want to repent. They're just solidified in their rebellion and... And they try and justify, well, it's okay in my case because of whatever. And this all makes confronting people in sin just icky, miserable. But yet the Bible talks about it all the time. It's all the way through the scriptures. It must be done. God commands it to be done. And it is the responsibility of every single Christian, not just leaders in the church. It must be done to maintain purity in the church. It must be done to make other believers fearful of sinning. It must be done to maintain our witness in the body of Christ. It must be done because it's the most loving thing to do, even though it's often the most painful thing to do. And as we read this morning, you can't say you love God And do to your brother what is harmful to him, which is not confront him. Confronting is the most loving thing. It's never the most loving thing to let somebody continue in rebellion against God. And as we return this morning to Timothy, we have have looked in the first several chapters about all kinds of things. We have learned about the goal of ministry, about not rejecting our conscience. We have learned about uh, the importance of um, um, women's roles and men's roles and worship and prayer and, and the ransom of Christ. And we have learned about apostasy and we've learned about elder qualifications and deacon qualifications and the qualifications of women who serve. And all of these things we've learned. And after going through all these different groups of people in chapter 4, he stops and he says, Listen, for those of you who are leaders in the church, you have to have these as your highest priorities, which were prayer and study and teaching and preaching God's word. And then in chapter 5, he takes a turn. He turns from the, the model of the excellent minister of Jesus Christ in the area of what he is to be doing as far as his tasks, and then turns to relationships with other people. And he addresses certain relationships, and um, when he gets to chapter 5 and the first two verses, he talks about rebuking. And that's what we are going to look at this morning. How does a good servant or an excellent servant of Jesus Christ go about rebuking other people? There are so many exhortations in the scripture, so many commands that tell us we need to be rebuking that a lot of times people aren't really um, 
aware of just how pervasive a teaching this is in the Bible. We're going to be looking at some of the texts today. Most churches, because they have fallen victim to the the church growth movement and the seeker-sensitive movement, don't do church discipline because if they do, they'd empty out their churches. People wouldn't come because a lot of them are living in sin, a lot of them are in rebellion, most of them are you know, maybe unbelievers, and you start naming people's sins from the pulpit and they run away. They run away. So never do that. And it's a tragedy because it makes the church a very unholy place. I talked to a music pastor candidate a few months back and it was very interesting because... Um, I, you know, we did a few little hi, I'm whoever, and we talked a little bit. And then he said, okay, well, I have some questions I want to ask you. So that's just ask me whatever you want. And he said, um, do you practice church discipline? That was the first thing he asked. And I thought, man, that is a good question. It's a good question because it reveals a lot about the nature of a church. It tells Right off the bat, whether a church is committed to obeying the whole counsel of God's word or just some of it. Church discipline is one of the first things to go if you're going to start fudging on the scriptures. It is immediately reveals whether you have bought into the seeker-sensitive church growth, you know, make people feel good motif of ministry or not. It It is a great question because it tells a person whether or not a church is committed to holiness in its worship and holiness in the lives of the believers. I was talking to this individual a little bit more and he said, well, this is interesting because I told him we we did practice it. And he said, well, he says, that's interesting because I've had nine churches talk to me and you're the first one. It just goes to show that Most churches will talk about love and talk about kindness, but they don't love somebody enough to confront them in their sin. Now, usually when people hear the phrase church discipline, we think of those miserable times when somebody's been confronted and confronted and confronted, and finally it has to be told to the church that this person's in sin, and this is their sin, and this is why it's wrong from the scriptures, and this is what we've tried to do. And we ask all of you to reach out to that person, pray for that person, you know, send them, if you know them, to send them a card or visit them or call them and encourage them to repent and turn from their sins. And it's, it's just miserable. It's not a fun thing. And yet, we are commanded to do it. God asks us to do it. Why? Because the church is to be a place of purity. But what most people don't realize is most church discipline never comes up here to the front. Most of it happens between yourselves when you talk to somebody you know who is caught in a trespass. And most of the time, people will confess and repent after the first or second confrontation. There are four primary stages of church discipline and we usually never get to the, the, the latter stages because people end up saying, well, you're right. They hear you out. They listen to you. You've won your brother and it's over. But in those extreme cases, um, people just will not. Now, confronting sin it is part and parcel of the ministry of leaders in the church. And again, it's not exclusively for leaders, but here he is speaking primarily to leaders, to those who are called to preach and teach and shepherd the flock of God. Now, he's already said in chapter 1 that Timothy was to instruct certain men not to teach sound doctrines. In other words, talk to them and kind of say, listen, what you're saying is wrong. Confront them and instruct them not to teach sound doctrines. He says... That Timothy was to be always pointing God's truth out to the brethren. This is wrong. This is the truth. And that he was to be commanding and teaching the scriptures. And that he was to be exhorting them in the word of God and preaching the truth and persevering in all of these things. We we found all this in chapter 4. But as you can imagine, there is a danger in this. There is a danger in that you can be a leader in the church... 
you can be given these commands by God, and then instead of being a shepherd, you become Genghis Khan. You go out to conquer. You go out to hammer people. You you take the exhortations to reprove and rebuke and exhort too far, and you become mean. You become nasty. You become harmful. In many cases, a sermon is all that is needed to cause a believer to turn from a sin. I, I, it's pretty much weekly. I have people say, oh man, I needed to hear that. You know, I've been struggling with this and I really needed to hear that. And just the sermon alone, I don't know about their sins. I mean, I have people come up to me, how did you know? It's like, know what? You mean you didn't hear? I said, no, I didn't hear anything. I mean, they are... Um, they're just amazed that, you know, I was speaking right to them, you know, and they thought, let me see your notes. Is my name down there? I didn't know. But see, they, they are being convicted by God's Spirit, and most people change. But sometimes there's one of those cases where, where the preacher isn't preaching on that sin, and somebody is committing that sin, and they begin entangled in that sin, and they're pretty soon they're like a fly caught in a spider's web, and they can't get through. They can't break loose. And that's why they need you to come along and help cut them out. To help set them free. When Paul was speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, he defined preaching as reproving and rebuking and exhorting. All three of those terms describe a constant confrontation of the truth. A confrontation of sin. And so, with the preaching and with all of you loving each other by saying, Hey, you know, this is something I see in your life. That takes care of most of all the confrontation reproof that needs to happen. And in our context, Paul wants to warn Timothy about abuses. He's not saying, don't do this, but he's saying, don't abuse this when you do it. You get a church leader who is prideful, who is insecure. He is commanded to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And he begins to attack people, to go after them in a mean-spirited, cynical, uncaring way. I remember being a young believer and I was in the in this Baptist church, and they had this guy come. He was visiting, and I'd never heard him before. I hadn't heard very many sermons at all, and I was sitting there in this church, and this guy got up there. Man, he was just, he was mean. I mean, this guy was, you know, he was meaner than a badger and rougher than a wood rasp. I mean, he was, rah! I mean, he was just after us. And I thought, man, his face had a skull, and he was, her, and his, you know, eyebrows were pointed in. I Everybody's out there going, don't hurt us. <laughs> and afterward, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing then. I was a young believer. I just came up to him and I said, you know, that the sermon was pretty good, but you seemed angry. And he seemed kind of put back like, really? Because out of the pulpit, this guy was very meek and just, you know, Mr. Milk and Cookies. But man, he got in the pulpit, man. He just like, he, he, he was payback time. And um, I was thinking, you know, it, videos weren't around then, but if that guy could have just had a videotape of himself, I think it would have cured him. It was like the seminary professor that I talked to who, the same thing, this student who was very passive and very, very um, meek and, you know, one of these guys who hardly said anything and then he gets up there into preaching lab and he becomes the Tasmanian devil! Rawr! You know, and he starts... Just, He's angry, and afterwards he finished, the professor said, Son, you are an angry preacher. And he said, Really? He said, Yeah, yeah, you're angry. He says, Do you have a dog? He says, I want you to go home, and I want you to preach to your dog like you were preaching us to hear. He said, Really? He says, This is an assignment. You have to do this. So that young man went and came back the next day, and he said, I, I couldn't do it. He said, why? He says, because my dog kept folding back its ears and slinking out of the room. 
And the professor says, your dog knows when you're mad at it, and that's why. You're, you're angry. You need to get rid of that. And Paul, understanding this, he understands these abuses. He understands how... How sometimes, you know, you're in the ministry and you're, you're a leader, you're an elder or whatever, and you've dealt with this person with this sin, and then another person with that same sin, and another person with that name, same sin, and another one, and another one, and another one. And then finally, you know, Mr. Ninth or Tenth comes along, and it's just like, listen, whoosh, we'll chop their head off. And you just want to just take them out. It's like, man, I'm sick and tired of you. And, you know, and it's like the accumulation of all these people you've had to deal with, and you're just going to hew them down right there. And so Paul wants Timothy to know how to rebuke and reprove and admonish in a godly way. And so he gives him these first two verses before getting into the whole business of widows and widows indeed. I'm just going to read this section from 5 through 16, or chapter 5, verse 1 through 16, so you can see the whole context of rebuking and this whole business with these widows. There's more relationship stuff that follows and keeps going even into chapter 6, but I'll read these first 16 verses for some context, and then we'll look at the first two verses on the good servant's rebuking. You can follow along as I read. Paul says this, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, and the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she, who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard for Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them. And the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now, this whole section here is talking about different kinds of relationships. And look at verses 1 and 2. Here we find four categories of people and how to rebuke them, or maybe it would be better to say how not to rebuke them. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. The text says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. The designation older man or older men is the singular form of the word Presbyteros, the word we get presbytery from, or the word we get elder from, as in the office of elder. But here it's used to describe the person who um, is just older in age, Um, maybe older than you are, older in age, older as far as society, whatever old is in that society. You know, we kind of have people retire here around 65, so when you're 65, you're instantly old, I guess. But we're just talking about people who are older than, than you are. Now, Timothy was in his 30s, and he was having to deal with many people. He was in a very mixed congregation. He had older people. He had younger people. And here he was in the midst of all these people, and many of them, if all you have to do is read the book, were attacking him. They were attacking the mystery. They were false teachers and people promoting wrong things and people who were defiling their conscience and people in immorality and people dealing with greed and and on and on and on. And so as a leader, he and the other leaders at Ephesus would have to deal with these, these people who are in sin. 
And that is why in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. He says, Instead, be an example, but make sure you give them the word of God. There were men, older men, obviously, who were looking down upon him. So, well, you know, you're just, you know, 38 or 35 or whatever he was. And, uh, you know, we're older and therefore we're right and you're wrong. And Paul's whole point was, listen, God's right and we're all wrong. So listen to what God says. And that's what he was trying to get Timothy to do. So Timothy found himself in this congregation and he needed to be assertive in the right way, uh, Paul told Titus to these things teach and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. Twice in Timothy here, he tells Timothy to command the scriptures, and we'll see that um, coming up in verse 7. The word prescribed there is literally the word be commanding, and we saw it in chapter 4, verse 11 also. And so Timothy has to learn how to be straight, be forward, not compromise, not pull back, not... Um, wimp out when confrontation comes, but yet to confront in a godly manner. And this is an art. This is a very difficult art. And Paul says um, not to sharply rebuke an older man. Now, if you have maybe the King James Version or uh, the English Standard Version, you will see that it says, um, do not rebuke an older man. That's not a good translation, and this is why. The word rebuke is a word which only appears once in the New Testament, and it means to strike a blow at. And there is a word that constantly occurs, and we're going to look at that in a minute, which is to reprove or rebuke. This is a very severe form. It basically means to give a verbal beating to or to hammer somebody verbally in a very unkind and mean way. And so the better translation is, as the NAS would have it, that you are to not to sharply rebuke because then it makes a distinction between rebuking and sharply or very harshly rebuking. It is to be very severe in your chastising to, you know, the verbal beating, attacking type of uh, rebuke. And Paul is not saying, as these some translations would imply, that there is to be no rebuking. Because that phrase, do not sharply rebuke, applies to all the other four categories. And then we wouldn't be doing any rebuking, would we? But the scriptures, as we shall see, constantly tell us to rebuke. And so it's best to understand this as a very sharp, uh, vicious, mean rebuke because there is much exhortation rebuke, as we shall see in a minute. So he says... Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather, notice what he says, appeal to him as you would a father, and you might translate the phrase, as your own father. Don't go laying into some guy. Um, Don't chop off some older gentleman's head like David chopped off the head of Goliath. You just be kind in your confrontation of their sin. He uses the word appeal here, rather appeal to him. Now that word appeal is the, is the same word we get, um, is usually translated to encourage or exhort or sometimes comfort. It's the, it's the word paracleo, the word we get, um, the, the paraclete. The, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the paraclete, um, the one who would come alongside to comfort, encourage. And remember, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit would be to convict the world of sin and judgment. And we are to be like the Spirit and do that ourselves. Not to damage somebody, but to encourage them to walk with the Lord. So Paul is saying that our role, everyone's role as the church, especially those in leadership, is to not be attacking people, but to appeal to them. And maybe a good example would be Abraham. Do you remember how he uh, uh, appealed to God when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, "Um, Lord... uh, Please not be angry with your servant, but, you know, if there are 50 people, will you spare them? And God says, well, if there's 50 righteous, I'll spare them. What about 20? 20, please don't be angry, but what about 20? That is a very reverent, a very reverent. Now, he was dealing with God, and so you have to be very careful when you're talking with God. But that's kind of the attitude that's 
that Paul is talking about an appealing, an appealing um, type um, of an attitude. It really means to urge, encourage, exhort, or beg or plead. This word appeal, and this applies to all the other, all the categories, not just the older men. So older men and older women, for that matter, deserve a higher degree of respect because they are older. If you are a younger preacher, you will never be the equal of somebody older than you are. So you have to respect them. And the scriptures call us to respect older people. And in our society, this is just something that is just, you know, we don't even know anything about respecting older people no more. As a matter of fact, they are a hindrance to most people. I mean, they, they don't even know anything about email. I mean, how can they be godly and not know about email? I mean, what good are they? They like all these old songs and they drive old cars. You know, we, we treat them as, uh, oh, those are people who are worn out. And in many cases, they are. But we need to respect them. And it's not an option. And I'm not just talking about those godly saints, the ones who you know, have read their Bible through a hundred times, um, their lifetime, and the ones who have you know, taught Sunday school for 60 years, and the, the ones who are super godly serving saints. I'm talking about the ungodly ones, too. You know, those mean, old, nasty men. Hopefully there's not too many of those here. <laughs> Listen to what the Word of God says in Leviticus 19.32. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Proverbs 16.31 says, A gray head is the crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Proverbs 20.29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, and the honor of old men is their gray hair. Older people are to be respected because they're older, period. A greater degree of respect is to be given to them. Apart from the Bible, there is no better resource for truth, I think, than a godly, mature, older believer. I mean, I have gained so much information from older believers who don't think they don't have anything to say. You go to them, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, you're the pastor. I mean, you know, so, well, just tell me, you know, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I'd do this. Like, good idea. They've lived a long time. They've, they've tried to apply God's word. And, you know, you need to find out about parenting, about marriage. I mean, they can tell, you know, we blew it. We blew it here. And, well, boy, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And you can go to some of these older people and get some great wisdom. I mean, they, they've been there sometimes two or three times. And they've learned some good things. And they've learned what the scriptures say. And they've learned... and it, we need to respect them for their age. But no matter what level of spiritual maturity an older person is at, God says they're to be respected, they are to have a greater degree of respect than peers. We are to appeal to older men as fathers in our confrontation. Again, not shirking the responsibility, but being respectful in the process. Now, what about young men? Those are older men. He talks about young men. Look at verse 1 again. The text says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers. Again, it's implied, don't sharply rebuke or lay into a younger man either. Don't be attacking him verbally, but instead treat him as a brother. Now, a brother would be a peer. In other words, like you would your own brother. You know, somebody you grew up with, somebody you were very close with, somebody you know, you know, through and through. And you would speak more frankly to your brother. I mean, you know, if you're an Italian family, you'd yell more frankly to your brother. And, you know, he's not going to hate you for it. I mean, you're brothers. And so he says, you know, when you're dealing with one of your peers, you might not use the same degree of respect and carefulness as you would with an older person, but still don't be attacking them, don't be giving them a verbal beating, but treat them like a brother, like a brother you love. Speak more frankly, maybe, yeah, but still don't be mean and vicious. The other category we look at, the third category about rebuking older women, look at verse 2. 
Paul addresses the women and he says... Um, in verse 2, that he is to be uh, implied appealing to the older women as mothers. And this would be with the utmost tenderness and care. I mean, you know, you love your mom, you want to take good care of her, you want to be kind to her, she's your mother. And all the same things that would apply to the older men would apply to the older women because they're older, because they have lived long, and you are to be attacking them in a mean-spirited way. And there are times when older women need to be rebuked, and they need to be rebuked. But, like you would rebuke your own mother. They would command an extra degree of respect, just as older men would. And fourthly, younger women. This is an interesting category here, because this category here has an extra qualifier. Notice what the text says at the end of verse 2. The younger women must be appealed to, just like all the rest, not verbally beaten, as sisters in all purity. Now here, Paul adds the phrase, in all purity. And I think you could probably understand why that is. Like younger men, they are not older, so they would not, you know, require the degree of respect as an older person, but they would require a greater degree of purity, that you would do nothing to to violate the purity of, of a younger woman in any way. We all know stories of all the pastors who have run off with other elders' wives and secretaries and ad infinitum and just ruined churches. Paul is speaking primarily of sexual purity, but it would include any other sin that would defile a young lady. Now, we know that Ephesus was a place where there was just incredible immorality, huh? I mean, if you look, you can look down... In verse 11 of chapter 5, where it says, um, But refused to put younger windows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard for Christ, they want to get married. And, and you go through 1 Timothy, you go through 2 Timothy, you look at uh, the book of Ephesians, you look at uh, places in Acts where it talks about Ephesus, and you find out that immorality was a problem in Ephesus. It was rampant. It was just, it was saturated in the culture. It was kind of like our culture. I mean, you have people go, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're living together as if it's just totally acceptable. Well, it is in our society, but it's not before God. And so people today will do things and they have, they have no, um, they don't know what the scriptures say. They're just like, what? I mean, what's the big deal? We're just living together, you know? I mean, we don't have to get married. Just have all the benefits of marriage with no commitment. And people, it's just normal. Well, that's how it was then. But then it was even worse because there were certain idolatrous cults that actually had um, immorality as a part of their, quote, worship. And so this church gets set up at Ephesus. Tim, Timothy comes to Ephesus, and now he's responsible to shepherd this flock. And there's all these women who have lived all their lives in immorality and grown up being taught to be immoral, and now he has to deal with them. And some of them, we know from chapter 2, they weren't dressing real good. I mean, some of them were using their, their dress to attract attention to their wealth and their body, and they were trying to make a statement, look at me. And they were distracting other believers. And these are the ones that Timothy... I mean, there have, there's been times when I've thought, Oh no, I hope that woman doesn't come to counseling dressed like that. And there was a couple times when I saw somebody come into the office. I thought, man, I just hid in the office and don't want to talk to him. I want that person in my office dressed like that. And, and some women just don't understand that their dress is provocative. Why? Because they've not been taught the scriptures. They, they don't know what modestly and discreetly is. And so they have no clue. Recently I went to um, shop. It was Leah's birthday and we went out. Um, she asked me if I'd go shopping with her for some shirts, you know. I guess they're called blouses. And... Um, so we went, you know, blouse shopping, and uh, and so we we went to the gallery because you know it's the mega mall, and um, so we're walking around, and we went from place to place to place, looking for one modest shirt. And after I think we went to at least ten places, maybe fifteen, and found three shirts, and one of them, I just told 
Leah, you can get that, but we're going to have to have mom sew it up. I mean, everything was see-through, tight, low-cut, or no-cut. I mean, there was no cut. There wasn't any cut. It was just, there was nothing there. And and I just, you know, I'm walking around these stores, and I just look at rack after rack. No, 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 no. And, and just realizing that the culture is just, is just saturated with, you know, this is my body and look at it and look at me and sexual immorality is just rampant and this is how it was with Timothy and that's why um, this text is so practical. If you are a godly leader, you must take extra pains. You know, we have a policy that we meet with women and there's always somebody else in the office, doors always crack, there's windows, you know, I had them install windows in my door so people can see in. Had them do it with the other guy's office, and we want holes cut in here, put big chunks of glass so people can look in. Why? Because you just can't take any chances. You can't take any chances. And so all of these are, are important things to do. We all need to rebuke, we all need to reprove, but never in a severe attacking way. With older people, with extra respect, younger people's peers, you can speak maybe a little more frankly with younger women in all purity. Now, having said that, I want to just take a little bit of time here at the end to talk about reproving and confronting and the need to do that. So we're just going to kind of have a little mini theology of rebuking right now. Now, when you look at the Bible, you find out that this whole theme appears over and over again. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. For instance, Leviticus 19.17 says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Don't hate your fellow countrymen. Then he explains how to love your fellow countrymen. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. Notice, if you want to love your neighbor and not hate him, you shall surely reprove him. You know, some people tell me, well, I just, I just, can't, I just can't discipline my children. You hate them. No, I love them. No, no, you hate them. You love you more than them. And you want to save you the discomfort, and that's why you don't discipline them. And that's the same thing with other believers. You show hatred towards people when you are unfaithful to go to them and reprove them of a sin that they're caught in. Listen to these verses from Proverbs, starting in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7 through 9. He says, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. You know, there are times when you, you go to somebody and you think, you know, gosh, i got to go talk to this person. And you go talk to him and say, you know, I, you know, I, you know you're him haunting around. And then you say, you know, well, there's something in your life and blah, blah, blah. And then, man, they turn on you. I've had it happen multiple times. They'll, oh, yeah, but you, but you. And they, you know, they get very angry and very vicious and very mean because they don't want you to confront them. He goes on to say, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in his learning. The problem is, is sometimes you don't know if they're a scoffer until you go confront them and then they turn on you and try and rip you apart. But yet you still must do it. Proverbs 15, 12 says, A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. You know, there's some people in the church that when they have a problem, who do they go to? They go to unbelievers. They go to the tabloids. They go to, you know, watch the Phil Donahue show. Why? Because they know if they went to a wise person, the wise person would tell them what the scriptures say, and they don't want to do that. And we've had per people come in here and they say, well, you know, I want to talk with me. So I tell them what the scriptures say and then they want to talk with Justin. So he tells them what the scriptures say. And then they go to Dave and he tells them. And then John and John tells them. Now, what are they looking for? They're looking for somebody to tell them what they want to hear. Proverbs 25, 12 says, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. In other words... You have two things here, a wise reprover 
and somebody who's willing to listen to it. And when those two things are brought together, it's like this incredible, beautiful ornament. Isaiah 117 says, Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan and plead for the widow. Reprove them, those ruthless people. They need it. Now, the most common word translated reprove or rebuke is the Greek word elenko in the New Testament. It's used throughout, and it's translated several ways. And what's interesting, it is a word which means to bring to light so as to expose it before view. Which, you know, I mean, who wants that to happen? Especially when it's your sin. You'd rather it just not be exposed out. That's why when Jesus said in Matthew 18... If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. The word show him there is elenko. It is to elenko him in private. That is, bring to light his sin, but do it in private so as not to cause undue embarrassment or shame. And hopefully he will repent. You've won his brother. Now, if he doesn't repent, then take somebody else and widen the sphere of the shame. And if he still doesn't, then go to the leaders and tell it to the entire church. And if that doesn't do it, then put him out of the church and treat him like an unbeliever and only have contact with him when you're having contact with him to encourage him to repent. And the whole purpose of that is to restore that person back to a place of walking with God. And it's not fun. But we have to do it. A good example of this is John the Baptist. I like John the Baptist. You remember what John the Baptist did to Herod? Now, Herod was the ruler of the whole region. And, you know, if you were a typical peasant, you would not even look cross-eyed at Herod. I mean, he killed people just for fun. And this is what we read in Luke Chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. The word reprimanded is elenko, to reprove, rebuke, to reprimand. In John 3, right after, you know, John 3.16, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, you know, about being born again and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, right after that, this is what the text reads in verse 19. Now, you see if you can find the word elenko in here. Jesus said, this is the judgment that light is coming to the world, but men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Did you see the word there? Exposed. To bring to light. The wicked do not want to come to the light because they don't want a go. They want to be reproved by the truth. It is the same word used in John 16.8 where it says the Holy Spirit is sent into the world to convict the world of sin and judgment. Same word. In Ephesians 5.11 we read, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but even expose them. Same word. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.20, you can look across the page there. It says, speaking to elders, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may also be fearful of sinning. One of the reasons that you, you are faithful to confront people who are in sin, and in this case it's elders who are in sin, those who are supposed to be examples, and now they're examples of wickedness. He says you reprove them in the presence of all so that the entire congregation will think, whoa. That guy's a leader, and if he got reproved, then we'll be reproved too, and so we aren't going to sin. So the rest will be fearful of sinning. In Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, Titus wrote, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are, and notice the things they're doing, upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now that, that is interesting, isn't it? 
And now listen to what he says. Now, he doesn't use the same word that's in our text. He uses the common word, elenko, but then he adds an extra adjective onto it just to amplify it. So he says, when you have somebody who's in the ministry for money, when you have somebody who is an evil beast and a lazy glutton and a liar and who is upsetting the faith of others, this is how you reprove them. Now, this is an exception to what we're dealing with. For this reason, he says, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. There are some people where mild rebukes just don't work. you got to get out a two-by-four and just really pelt them one in order to try and get them to see their error. Later, he tells Titus in Titus 2.15, These things speak and exhort and reprove, there's the word, with all authority and let no one disregard you. So reprove is just found all the way through the scriptures. It's part of being a Christian. It's part of loving other people. And we aren't going to have you come here and just go, You can sin and rebel against God all you want and God loves you. I'm telling you the wrath of God abides on you. That's what I would tell you. I would tell you, the one who says he has come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's what we need to tell them. We need to say, hey, the Bible says this and you're doing that. And brother or sister, man, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. That is the loving thing to do. Is it hard to do? Yes. Do we have to examine our own hearts first? Yes. Do we need to take the log out of our own eye before we look at the speck in someone else's? Yes. Do we need to make sure we aren't judging hypocritically? Yes. But do we still need to do it? Yes. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul had to speak to the Thessalonians. Now, they were so excited about the second coming of Christ, that some people just sold all their possessions and just waited around. He's coming. And so they're just waiting around. And pretty soon they get hungry. And so they're a bunch of people, kind of busy bodies and free loafers and looking for a handout and all because they made rash decisions, went against the scriptures... And this is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.6. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. And then he goes on to explain how they were rejecting apostolic teaching. Um, some were busybodies. Some were working. And Paul, I mean, he just absolutely lays it out here. Listen, he says, If somebody isn't working, do not feed him. If a man does not work, then neither let him eat. Let him starve before you feed him. If he has chosen just to be lazy, make sure you don't encourage him in his laziness. And then in verse 14, he says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this later letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Notice, you get, away, get him out of the church, why? So he's put to shame. And then notice this, Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The whole point of putting them out, the whole point of practicing church discipline is to shame that person to repentance so that you can just bring him right back in as soon as he repents and as soon as he wants to turn from his sin and start walking with the Lord. Just bring him back in and start loving him again. And this teaching is not practiced in most churches in most places in the world. They would tell you, oh, this is wrong, this is unloving, this is mean, this is evil. But according to the word of God, it is the most loving thing to do. In closing, I want you to think about the church of Laodicea. You remember the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3? And the one church that didn't get any accolades, any commendation was the church of Laodicea. It happened to be the rich church, at least financially speaking. And these people were rich. They were kind of settled in their churchianity. You know, they were religious. I mean, they were followers of Jesus, they said. They had all these resources, but they had no passion for God. And Jesus said, you're like a lukewarm cup of coffee. I just want to spit you out of my mouth. 
He says, you know, you're so proud of your material wealth, but I want you to know. Now, listen to these words that Jesus used to them. You are miserable and wretched and blind and naked. That's what he told them. And then he said this. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Jesus affirmed his love and that he would reprove and discipline them. He says, do you know why I love you? Do you know how you can know I love you? Because I reprove you and I discipline you. So be zealous and repent. One of the greatest judgments that God can deal out is to leave somebody alone. That is the worst judgment when God gives you over. Let's pray. Father, we, we are humbled by texts like this because we know that all of us have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way and we've all sinned all the sins that could be sinned, maybe not in every degree, but in every kind. We know, Father, that your word tells us that we are to be faithful to reprove and rebuke and exhort, but never in a mean-spirited way never in a vengeful or attacking way. And Father, I just pray that Calvary Bible Church would be a church where all the church discipline is done one by one, believer to believer and brother and sister in Christ to each other, where we would go in private and reprove each other in a kind way, showing love and respect, especially for the older people. May you teach us how to Respect older people like your word says. Grant them honor and respect for they are do it. And Father, may this church become a place of holiness where we worship you in holiness and your spirit and truth and offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices which are holy. And Father, we can only do that as we study your word, as we are faithful to obey it, in this whole area of reproving. So, Father, make this part of everyone's life here, especially the leaders. And, Father, may you bless this church as we seek to obey you. Amen.